Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Gerritsen. Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Gerritsen. Today, my guest is George Pullen. George is a free market economist, teacher, and advisor with 20 years of experience as a strategic analytical problem solver. George is the chief economist of Milky Way Economy, a fifth industrial revolution think tank and boutique consultancy based in Washington, D.C. He is the author of five books related to technology, space, and alternative finance. Prior to founding Milky Way Economy, which is a think tank that focuses on advising businesses, technologists, financiers of the space economy, he learned his craft as an executive, banker, broker, hedge fund trader, economist, and lecturer. His areas of market expertise, research, and publishing cover a wide range of alternative markets, including healthcare, energy, blockchain, rare earth derivatives, environmental social governance, trading, defense innovation, AIML, crowdfunding, and space economics. For the last decade, he has been refining his economic philosophies as a senior economist at the U.S. Commodities Future Trading Commission. He is the author of the book Blockchain in the Space Economy and host of the Space Economy podcast. He holds adjunct appointments and conducts guest lectures at a number of institutions, including Columbia University, University of New Hampshire Law, Eisenhower War College, John Hopkins, where he teaches financial economics, blockchain, fintech, alternative markets, and of course, the space economy. He's a subject matter expert and advisor on Global Association of Risk Professionals and the International Institute of Forecasters. George splits his time between DC and Maine. He was the once and always US Marine, and he is an alumni of UMaine and John Hopkins. He has a beautiful wife and four wonderful kids. Welcome, George. Ooh, thank you for that amazing bio. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to be on here with you. Um, I've listened to your podcast a number of times, and I'm really excited for us to just jump right in and uh, cover a lot of ground today. Well, fantastic. So how do you describe your place in the space ecosystem? Sure. So I look at what's happening with the space ecosystem as something similar to what I've seen happen in other, what I call alternative markets. So alternative markets in general, when I describe them to others, I like to say that these are the types of markets that you don't normally see on the Wall Street Journal's top pages. And these are markets that can learn a lot from ordinary markets that have many more years of study and activities. So my background is in derivatives and commodities trading. And I've also spent a lot of time in the energy business and more recently with blockchain. And so all of these were at one time or for some perhaps still considered alternative markets. I see space as another alternative market and perhaps the newest of the alternative markets, especially when we talk about the large amount of growth in space commercialization that we're seeing right now. So aside from the bio, how do you describe your role in the, the broader space ecosystem? Sure. So first and foremost, I'm an economist and I look at things through the lens of an economist. When I think about what's going on today in the space ecosystem, I really draw from my experience in other alternative markets. I have a, I have a banker's background, a broker, you know, as a hedge fund trader, all these things you mentioned. And what they exposed me to was many different alternative markets. I, I see space as another 
one of these alternative markets. I see lessons learned and things that we can draw from as points of experience in the likes of derivatives markets, commodity development, energy markets, uh, most recently blockchain, because all of these markets are the types of markets that you don't classically see on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And these markets still are maturing. And I think there's a lot of similarities between those markets and what we're seeing right now in space commercialization. So just let's start with the biggest picture first. What is going on with the space economy? Or I guess I should say, let's start with some basics, like how big is the total space economy um, and how big is the U.S. space economy and, and what is going on with the economy? Sure. So when we think about the space economy right now, there's, well, first let's have this discussion. So there's the space economy and then there's the space industry and words matter and, and sort of definitions. So I'm going to clarify which one I'm speaking about. So the space industry is the collection of firms engaged with access, gathering information, and development of deployment, excuse me, of assets in space. So that's those are space firms that are in the space industry. The space economy, or any economy that you might be looking to analyze, is not just the collection of those firms, but it's also the interactions between those firms and other companies that may not have direct ties to space as they see it. So when we're talking about the space economy, it is the interconnection of the space industry firms to some of their terrestrial partners. One of the examples you could think of here is someone who makes advanced machinery parts or advanced circuits, which are also used in other applications for either the support or deployment of space assets today, whether we're talking about rockets or satellites. Those would be firms that are not generally considered to be part of the space industry, but they are part of the larger space economy. Similarly, all of us are part of the space economy today, if you go very, very broad, because of our dependency on things like GPS, and communication systems that rely on satellite. So the space economy, if you were to section off from the other portions of the economy, now that we've defined more clearly the difference between an industry and an economy, the space economy today is estimated to be worth around 475 billion, that's a B, $475 billion. The US portion of that is over half. The US portion of the space economy is so large for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the U.S. has a long history of space, space innovation, and space firms. So it does make sense that it would have over half of that current market share. Now, I think, though, the thing that's much more interesting, and which we're seeing right now, is that the space economy is forecast to reach into the trillions of dollars. And so depending on whether you subscribe to the reports put out by the likes of you know, Morgan Stanley or Bank of America, um, Goldman Sachs, or even some of the ones put out by others like the, uh, the, the Chinese Space Agency, the estimates go anywhere from uh, $2 trillion, $4 trillion, even $10 trillion over the next 20 or 30 years. And so if we think about being where we are today, which is under uh, a half a billion, and the even middle of those ranges of going to the 4 trillion or even 10 trillion mark, you're talking about a zone of economic activity, which will increase 10, maybe even 20 fold. And 
trillions don't mean what they used to mean. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'll be careful there. Uh, trillions don't mean what they used to mean, but I think it's worth noting that when you're talking about an economic zone of activity in the four, five, even $10 trillion range, you're talking about an economic zone of activity, which is the equivalent of a continent. And so, the, you know, we're whether we're talking Australia or, or South America, that amount of economic activity occurring outside of Earth between Leo and cislunar space will demand a huge amount of infrastructure buildup and our connectivity and our access to that zone of economic activity to promote wealth, to promote um, power, to project security, freedom of movement, all of those things get, get tied together because we're not just talking about a small ecosystem. We're, we're talking about something that is multi-trillions of dollars in the not too distant future. And so it's important for people to realize that to get to that number, there will be a lot of infrastructure that comes along the way and a lot of norms of behavior that also need to be established along that way. Now, let's back up just a little bit. So, you know, I, I, I guess the a two-part question is, first, are, are any of these estimates credible or are they just hype? And how do economists arrive at a forecast? How do they arrive at a forecast that an economy is going to grow into the trillions? That's a good question. So first off, it's important to look at the growth that we've seen in the space industry to date. And unfortunately, um, if you look at it closely, you can see that the space industry has actually, uh, has actually been growing more slowly than the overall economy. And so I do not want to be the type of economist that uh, hypes a market. I, I think we should have a very honest discussion about this. And that is that the, the space industry as a whole has grown more slowly than the overall economy, particularly over the last five or 10 years. Now, that being the case, looking backwards in time is not always the most effective way to look forward in time. You know, this is, this is where forecasters sometimes get themselves in trouble because they need to admit that there is more art sometimes than science here. And so if we were just relying on the previous growth in the space industry, we might say, well, it is reasonable that we could see the space economy double in size in another 12 to 15 years. Now, at that measurement, though, we're still talking about a trillion dollar space economy. And again, that's not assuming more growth than what we've seen in the past. So that would be a very conservative number. Now, to get to numbers that are bigger than that, you have to agree, and this is what economists do, you have to look at the variables at play and then make a series of assumptions that you feel are reasonable. So the first is that launch costs, and I'm just going to beat a dead horse here that everyone else has probably already said before, but as launch costs decrease, this inevitably makes the access to space more affordable. And therefore, we can assume that the people who are looking to generate positive returns in space, having their business models improved. That's the first part. The second part of it is we also have a lot more space players than we've ever had before. And by space players, I'm not just talking about other nations with aspirations and current missions in space, but I'm also talking about private sector firms. And whether it's, you know, I mean, pick your private sector firm, whether you're talking about, you know, Astroscale or NanoRacks or Redwire or whoever, all of these firms are 
well-capitalized and making serious investments into both the technology development and the eventual deployment of major infrastructure projects for space. So it is reasonable to assume that not only will launch costs increase activity in space, but also as more infrastructure is laid out, it'll allow even more firms to participate. This has to do with quite frankly, something that we're really bad at as humans, which is understanding the potential exponential growth in front of us. I often call the space economy our fifth industrial revolution. Our fourth industrial revolution, I believe we are currently in. Our fourth industrial revolution, if you look at what's happening around us, it is the advancements in financial technology, energy innovations, particularly when it comes to clean energy innovations, the advancements in biomedicine and healthcare. And of course, you can't forget about um, big data, which feeds into our ability to program and adopt better and faster forms of machine learning and eventually you know, AI. So that's, so that's the fourth industrial revolution. That's where we are. But that all of those things, all of those things help us with our fifth industrial revolution in space. So, and, and let's talk specifically about that. So what do you see as this fifth industrial revolution? What are the components of it? I think that there will be a number of components here that have already been laid out quite well by others. And I think there's some here that people are not also thinking about. So let's do the ones that everyone likes to rattle off. So we'll see more and more deployment of satellites, both in LEO, but also in MEO and GEO. We will also see the development of infrastructure to include the need for better satellites to help us with our, our tracking, telemetry, and location information in between the Earth and the Moon, and also around the Moon itself, so in the cislunar regions. That's just satellites. In addition to satellites, I think you can see a number of firms, all very credible, that are working on commercial space stations. I'm happy to go out on a limb and say that the idea of us having between six and 12 commercial space stations in the next 10 years is a very reasonable forecast. If you think about what six to 12 commercial space stations means, it is access to research, development, technology, study, and I would also include manufacturing in space like we have not seen before. The ISS is a wonder. The ISS is a modern wonder. And by the way, I separate topic, but I do think it should be saved. So when we're, when we're done with it, let's not just uh, deorbit it. But I, I would say that if you look at what we actually spend on the ISS, and if you look at the, the, the crude hours time on the ISS, the, the amount of time and money actually able to be devoted to strict science research development technology is rather limited. When we're talking about commercial space stations, the idea is that a much larger percentage of time and dedicated personnel for science technology research development will be present. And I'm excited about what they'll unlock. I would not assume to know <laughs> what that might be, but I am willing to suspend what I don't know and acknowledge that the likelihood of a breakthrough medical development. So I think, for example, whether it's J&J, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, whoever it might be, one of them will have either lease space or potentially their own commercial space station. And the very first time that the next 
Lipitor <laughs> or the next uh, Viagra is discovered and able to be even presently made in space, it changes the game for the rest of the healthcare industry. If you are Pfizer and you, you experienced this fantastic breakthrough based on your, your research and what you're able to now do with your commercial space station, that's a very awkward board meeting if you're J&J or AstraZeneca and, <laughs> and, and the new billion dollar uh, drug that just got made was made by the other guy based on a facility that you don't have yet. I also think this is true when we look at manufacturing. Um, there's, a, there's a large amount of things that we can do with ceramics and with crystal shapes in uh, low microgravity situations like we would have on commercial space stations that we cannot do here on earth. If you think about what we need for the new four and five, nine standards for lithium batteries, I know this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but it's, it's relevant here. If you look at the types of strands we'll need for those new four and five, nine purity generation lithium batteries that have been talked about, that happens much easier in space. I, I see a pathway where manufacturing in space for very specific components and high-end materials becomes a, a viable and developed market. Um, and we can, you know, we could talk about the Z-Blan and the rest of this lot, but I, I think the idea broadly is that you'll see healthcare sector, you'll see a specialized material manufacturing sector. You'll also see a, a tourist sector. I don't think we should dismiss that. I, I don't think it'll be as large as the number of firms who seem to be willing to do that. <laughs> But um, we'll, we'll also see a tourist sector. And then I think it comes down to much further down the road, the gathering of materials. So this is, of course, you know, the, the mining of the moon and the like. I, I don't see that in the near future, in the next, uh, the 10 to 15 year timeline I was speaking about previously. But I do think that is a consideration, particularly when we have the infrastructure in place to support that and make that more financially viable. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of glad that you ended that way because this is the third time you've used the word infrastructure. And I think it's good to ask, like, what does that word mean? First of all, when I think about infrastructure, I think about three things. I think about the communications infrastructure. So this is the ability for firms to communicate from their terrestrial, from their US-based operations to their assets in space with a reliable network. Now, for anyone who follows space, they, they know what a bottleneck it is right now for us to get more data down. Uh, we have a large amount of data that we're collecting in space that we're unable to bring down and commercialize. As we all know, data is power, data is money. <laughs> And so part of infrastructure is going to be improving the communications and improving our ability to bring down larger amounts of data from both near Earth and further away from Earth that we're gathering. So part one is communications. Part two is the, the guardrails on transportation. Now, this is probably going to make some people mad, but that's okay. Um, sometimes people need to be mad to move forward. So to have guardrails on transportation, let's think about the interstate system in the United States. So the internet, internet system, uh, interstate system, excuse me, uh, I'm trying to go to my second point. I'm out. <laughs> the interstate system in the United States was fashioned to improve our mobility 
it was standardized and it was rolled out over um, over a decade to provide this this network and this connectivity that we're just so used to now. When we think about what that looks like for space, that doesn't necessarily mean a national road system to the moon. Okay, so I'm not I'm not saying this is a national system, but what I am saying is that there will be both standards on what transportation looks like and that those transportations around what um what safety looks like right so these are these are things like speed limits and norms these will come from the us and other and other space powers to make sure that these transportation networks are both safe and secure this also has to do with freedom of movement so the ability for commercial entities to freely move in space so that's the that's the second part and the third part, which I which I kind of already mentioned, was um, when we think about the the internet and we think about what that provides to us. It's a lot more than just communication systems. It's a lot more than just information. What the the internet provides for us and what that will provide for us in space is the ability to access information both out there but also our ability to process information out there. So I see a future where we have data centers that are in space. Now, I know that um, someone's going to mention, you know, the need for rad hardening and what that looks like. And George, that sounds very expensive. I'm not proposing the solution. I'm proposing that if you look at the three fundamentals of infrastructure, these are the three, <laughs> these are the three that we always have to have. And so these are the three that we will find ways to develop. And the commercial firms that find the ways to improve our connectivity to each other through better communications, improve our physical ability to move safely, and improve our ability to access and process information will be part of the winners in the coming space economy evolution. Now... Uh, this is a natural place to ask in the conversation. What do you see as the role of government? I see the role of government as being one that helps establish norms of behavior so that if we think now about the way things work in the space domain, it's not unfamiliar, right? So right now, if you are um, following the situation with the ports where they are so backed up, each of those ships in port coming in with large containers has a flag. They're all flagged vessels. There is a country that says that this is um, a ship under my jurisdiction, under my norms of behavior, right? This is very similar to what we see with satellites. Satellites are flagged vessels. And no one on your podcast can see me doing my air quotes, but they're flagged vessels. And so I think there are similarities there. And I think what we'll see with the further development of infrastructure is that best practices of behavior will inform policies. Those policies will inform government actions that will necessitate, and I'm going to use the R word, regulation that says, this is how you must operate. One of the things could very easily and very quickly, I see being something related to space debris. Um, another would be norms of behavior around um, optimal points from which you would want to leave Earth to head to the moon for various you know, economic reasons. Uh, you can see these you know, future freeways having speed norms, having standards by which vessels pass each other. Um, I would say the same thing with space stations. 
I would also say the other role with government would be a, um, an SAR, a search and rescue function. We take for granted how much anyone who, in, <laughs> anyone who in, enjoys um, fishing off the coast depends on the Coast Guard and the security that they provide to operators and fishermen, but will need something similar and a similar search and rescue function. That is 100% a, a government function. Just to expand on this, what I meant by the space station part is we'll also see norms of behavior. So if you have to lend assistance, what does that look like? Who is protected? What is what is a you know type of distress call that that must be answered? These are all things that'll come from government bodies and government entities, which is you know the norms, the policies, and of course the the security and the search and rescue functions. Do you see a, a necessary role in either in sort of starting investment and helping R and D or being a an anchor customer? Yes, one one hundred percent. So. When you look at a idealized market, a lot of times when people talk about free markets, I'm, I'm a big Smithian, so I'm more than happy to, to have the free market discussion with someone. When you look at a idealized free market, you have a large number of buyers and a large number of sellers who are able to participate with near full information for products that are minimally differentiated, right? That's like your... Welcome to Econ 101 with Professor Fulton. <laughs> but let's translate that to the space economy. So right now, you don't have a large number of buyers, and you don't really have a large number of sellers. So in this type of market, if you automatically are starting on a place where um, you don't have this idealized market just based on the number of participants, you need to think realistically about how governments can assist. The easiest ways that governments can assist is to push out with this infrastructure that I previously talked about. So we already need to have that infrastructure in place for various security reasons, just as we project our own US power. And so alongside that, we can also be helping firms with our need for this infrastructure build out to come alongside us as partners to install additional space stations to install, additional infrastructure, additional communication capacities, additional um, internet data server capacities, because all these things benefit both the government and our national security interests, but they also benefit the firms along the way that need those tools for themselves. So I think there's a research and development part. I would love to see a greater focus on uh, STTR and SBIR for space specifically. But I also think when it comes to pure infrastructure, that that is also a role that uh, government can spend and government should be spending on when it comes to space to help us commercialize it and to help U.S. firms win um, that economic frontier. Well, again, perfect segue to where I wanted to go with my next question, which is, you know, you mentioned the United States winning this economic frontier. Is the United States in any kind of jeopardy? Who's it playing against? How serious are they in terms of their uh, government industry interaction? And, and does that require a, a laissez-faire or a proactive stance? That's a good question. I think this comes back to something I talked about much earlier, which is how, in general, we have a hard time thinking exponentially. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> fundamentally, I'm a kid who grew up in Maine. 
right? So I, I, I watch a lot of hockey. Um, I'm, I'm very comfortable on the ice. And I will say people need to think about what a hockey stick looks like. And someone who might not be a near peer competitor today, if they have an exponential leap forward in any one of these previously mentioned technology sectors, they could pass the technology that U.S. firms are deploying. And so if people are not actively trying to be first, then you are preparing to be last. And the next part of this I would add, and this is, again, important to recognize, when we're talking about the opening up of a cislunar zone of economic activity that might be in the range of you know, up to $10 trillion, I, I just have to repeat it. This is the equivalent of a, another Australia of economic activity. This entire continent of economic activity will divide among those who have access to space and whose firms are in space to um, seize on these market opportunities. If the U.S. chooses not to invest in the infrastructure to assist its firms in capturing and taking advantage of these economic opportunities, other countries certainly will. I would also add that as you see more and more economic activity generated from space, there is a point in time, it, it might very well be outside of, of our lifetimes, uh, you know, singularity aside, it might very well be outside of our lifetimes, but there, there is a future point in time that if you are not a space power, you are not a world power. You know, just to catch up any you know, stray listeners that may not be familiar with your reference to singularity, can you just describe what is meant by that term? Sure. So uh, when, when some people refer to the singularity, they're, they're talking about a future point in time where there is no death. You are able to live on indefinitely. I prefer to think in a biological form, but more than likely in a digital form. <laughs> All right. So banking up to something you said, you said that uh, if the United States doesn't assist its firms, others will. So what, what could or what should that sort of assistance look like? And what sort of assistance are other uh, governments providing their commercial space firms? So this is good, right? So what we can look at right now is a need for the the average the average listener, and and I'm sure your average listener is is not average in any way, shape, or form. Um, but it, it's important for them to understand that we are not talking about a two party space race. Okay, so let's let's start there. We we are talking about the space race 2.0 as being a relay race, where there is a number of both private and national actors funding their space research and space programs. If you, uh, the last time I uh, did a search, I could find over 100 countries with their own space agency. Now, granted, granted, not, not all 100 have access to space the way that the U.S. does, but these are all nations with their eye to the, to the skies. They are making the investments strategically into their STEM programs, just like we are. They are making their necessary research and development dollars go toward what they think will, will help them have an edge and have, help them have the opportunity to participate in a, a growing space economy. And they're also partnering in very interesting ways. We saw recent announcements where the, 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 spa the space agency of Mexico was signing MOUs with um, Roscosmos, 
right? So the, the, the Russian space agencies. We saw other announcements where um, a large number of both uh, Latin and Caribbean countries came together to work jointly on their space aspirations. We have seen um, launches take place from partnerships with people from both India, Israel, and Japan uh, to get some really cool technology up. So I, I mentioned this only because I, I don't think it's quite as simple as which country spending what and how much and what's that mean? I think the more interesting way to think about it is in this new space race, there are so many layers of cooperation and there are so many ways that countries and firms can interact with each other that to, to mind map that out effectively, you soon realize that everyone is in this game right now. And I believe is because everyone sees the same economic future that I see. So on that note, you know, you gave us a, a range of where the space economy is going to be. Um, what is your target? How big is your guess as to, or your educated judgment as to, you know, where you would put that number and how far out is that number? Certainly. So I am completely willing to go out on a limb and I've I have talked to people about this before, but it is, it is hard to tell people to think exponentially and then not do so yourself. And I firmly believe that there will be a hair on fire problem solved from a space commercial entity, uh, potentially a, a commercial space station within the next five or 10 years. And that when that happens, we go from an economy probably in the two to three trillion range in 2030 to something that could easily be 10 or even 20 trillion by 2040 or 2050. And if you think about what that means, that's even, I know, past, <laughs> um, past some of the, the more, uh, you know, robust and well-published reports, like I mentioned before, you know, Morgan Stanley's and the Goldman's and everyone else has put out, but it, it's worth considering that even in the, even the medical industry, right? It is not uncommon for a, a multi-billion or even a trillion, um, a, a multi-billion dollar drug to be discovered. If you, if you think about the, just the shortage in organ transplants here in the United States, that is a $50 billion market shortage. If you think about the ability for us to have data centers in space and what that could potentially mean for our improved communications here on the ground, but also for our ability to connect to our resources further out in the solar system, I think, I think there's enough there that we easily see a, a 10 or $20 trillion economy, hope, hopefully in my life. So you know, one of the things that we've only sort of tangentially talked about, you talked about gathering resources, but would you talk a little bit about space mining, asteroid mining or lunar mining? You know, what's there? You know, how, how do we, how do we, you know, value that? And then, you know, what does that mean when that's able to sort of be, and, and what's that for? So, you know, tell me your, tell me your thoughts on this space resources and resource gathering. So if you, if you think about 
resource gathering out in space. And, and of course, everyone likes to talk about space mining. I will say, and it's important to mention that for each of the last three years <laughs> that I've done the, uh, the summer program at Columbia, for our final project, I have always had a team show me a space mining company and show me the, the, the math around why this makes so much sense. The problem every time has been the number of zeros associated with it making sense. Let's take one step back. What is valuable out there? Well, what's valuable out there is, is largely a lot of the same stuff that's here. When we think about the moon, the moon has large amounts of oxygen, silicon, iron, magnesium, calcium, aluminum, you know, things that we also have in here on earth. Now it also has some interesting things, right? Also it has um, some, some interesting things for potential, you know, future energy innovations. And of course I'm you know, talking about helium three, but when we talk about the moon versus asteroids for asteroids, a lot of times we're talking about potential resources of precious metals. And we're talking about potential resources of rare earth minerals. Now, I don't think that there's enough there, however, for the import, I'm going to define import, import of those materials to make sense right away. Because I think what is far, far more likely, if you look at the two factors here in this equation is first, we are gathering materials either from the moon or from asteroids to do what with? Well, your gut reaction is, well, to bring back here and use, of course, George. And I would say, well, hold on a second. It's already in space. <laughs> Why are we going to be so quick to bring it back here to earth, to home? If we're actually going to be building dozens of commercial space stations, and I should quantify, you know, it could actually be less, but very large you know, commercial space stations that are just connected to each other, like a giant floating industrial park. So uh, just to be clear, I'm really focused more on the square footage there than the, or the cube footage. I want to make that for faux pas, the cube footage. Um, what's important to think about is we are going to be doing the math that says, does it make more sense based on declining launch costs for me to send that material up processed here on earth or to launch out further to journey further out and collect from moon or asteroid and bring it back for making these structures. That is a very, very interesting equation. And the, the way it happens is, you know, these two things are going to be, are, are going to be continuing to fight each other. I think that early on, you will see much of this mining activity devoted toward gathering resources you know, like iron, like aluminum, like some things I just mentioned that, that will be used for the construction of structures in space for some of the space infrastructure that we were talking about earlier. It'll be far less for actually bringing materials back to earth for us to use on earth. So, you know, that of course brings up the question of, you know, we, we talked about what makes sense in the near term, but once you get past 20, 30 years and you've got this infrastructure and you have this mobility, you know, what, uh, how big a resource is out there and what kind of impact could that have on national power? Yeah, that's a good question. So when we think about our national power or any country's national power for that matter, it is a combination of its ability to provide stability for its citizens, its ability to provide protection for itself and for its allies, uh, both uh, from a 
military side, but also from commercial side. And it is its access to raw material. When we're talking about accessing the raw materials present in space, we're, we're literally talking about tapping into <laughs> riches that we can barely understand, let alone consider how large our access could be to these materials 20, 30 years out. Forecasting that far out gets very dangerous very quickly. But you can see a future with a sufficient level of human activity and automation and assistance by, I would say, um, not just automation, but telerobotics that allows for the harvesting of huge deposits of uh, natural resources that'll be used for the construction of still larger space infrastructures, still larger space stations. And so I, I think that countries that are putting in the time today to think about their, their future in space, understand that they would not necessarily be limited any longer by their earth geography alone or their earth access to resources alone in their, in their calculus and their, in their power projection as a nation. You know, we've been talking almost entirely about material resources, but space contains a, a wealth of energy resources as well. Would you want to comment on those? I think that we're, we're finally at the point where space-based solar power is becoming something that more and more of us are talking about in the industry. And I will not be surprised at all to see space-based solar power get incorporated into some sort of national program here in the United States in the, in the very near future. Um, this is strictly me looking forward as you know an academic and thinking about what this would mean. I, I don't have any inside baseball here, but I, I do think we're at a point where we're very near the cusp on that. I would also say when we talk about the other energy resources available to us in space, I think it's also a good time to at least mention the ability for you know further research development and the need for additional research development around you know nuclear-based space propulsion. And that, that the deployment of nuclear-based space propulsion is going to be a differentiating technology for space powers. So the, the, the countries that are working on that today and the firms that are working on that today will have greater access to more raw materials further away quicker. And these advantages will allow them to both not only project their power further, but also allow their, their companies or their nations to access um, you know, these additional monetary advantages. And so I, I really think that space-based nuclear power has to be something that is in our national conversation if we're really looking to get further out more quickly and gather more resources more efficiently. I think there are a lot of folks who are going to be inherently skeptical of the idea that there's going to be a, a market or customers or a pull for anything further out. I mean, I've heard people, you know, sort of remark about going back to the moon that, you know, this is, you know, let the Chinese waste their money and let the, let the billionaires have their midlife crisis. You know, there's, there's nothing really there. And I think their mental model is something like an Antarctica. Um, can you explain a little bit about why your mental model is, is different from that? Why won't we just top out after we've had you know, the next couple Americans land on the moon and what's there to build after the infrastructure of GPS system and some communications further up? 
I think there's a couple things here too, right? So the, the first is if you think about the last time we're on the moon, it's 1972, right? So it's, it's, been, it's been 50 years since we've had boots on the ground. I think that if you think about how much further science and technology has come in those 50 years, we are potentially being a bit too short-sighted if we see our next trip having all the same results as the last trip. I think it's important for us to keep in mind that we've had an additional 50 years of science and technology developments to support this next trip. And that when we're there, our ability to collect additional information and potentially do a more thorough calculation on what it would a sustainable, a sustained, excuse me, a sustained longer term presence would mean and what economic, political, or defense benefits that could pose. The next thing is, let's just talk about the high ground. No one is in a rush to get to Antarctica to hold the high ground. That's not the same when we think about space. If you're dependent on an asset that's in Leo, but I control Geo, or I control Cislunar, or I can access all of your systems from the moon, I have the higher ground. So I don't claim to be a I don't claim to be a strategist or anything like that um, when it comes to anything military in relation. My time in the Marine Corps is a long time ago. I carried a rifle and I'm, I'm proud of that time, but I'm, I'm not a tacticianer. <laughs> but I will say that holding the higher ground means something far different than it meant 50 years ago as well. So there is a strategic reason why we'd want to maintain a presence that far out. There's also the need to admit that science and technology has come along much further. And I think the third thing is we're not the same people that we were 50 years ago. I think we've come to a place as a, as a culture and as a society where there is such a groundswell of interest and community organizing, and yes, I know I just use that word, community organizing, and uh, quite frankly, passion around space that you'll see companies which might start out as, and I hate to say as PR stunts, but you'll see companies making real moves in space because the risk of being left behind is far too great. And I think that's the other difference because 50 years ago, when we went to the moon, there was no possible way for Coke or Pepsi <laughs> to, to come along with us. That's, that's not the case now, right? You could, you could very easily see companies seeing strategic advantages to having some of their, their assets, some of their, if not assets alone, but also their, their branding and their connection to the larger community through space being shown by their support of the development of additional space infrastructure. And so I, I, I totally understand why some people see you know, what some certain billionaires are doing and they, and they might scoff at it, but we're not just going there for billionaires, right? We're, we're going there for all of us. And I think it's a bright, bright future. Now let's just pause there to talk a little bit about what do you see is the role of the billionaires is what they're doing important? I think what they're doing is important because it raises the discussion around more dinner tables. I, and, and you, you mentioned it, you know, with, with this, with the space economy, 
with the Space Guys po podcast and, and the e-learning shows I do, I will tell you that the reason I started doing that a few years ago was because I saw this huge gap between billionaires talking about their space ambitions and experts in the fields of astrophysics, like, you know, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, but no one translating, right? No one's saying to more citizens in ways that they could access and providing them with, with business models, commercial models, mental models around why this makes sense for them, why they should care. I think that was what was missing. And if, and if we think about it from that point of view, the billionaires might help us start the conversation and continue the conversation. But if you look at a future on a commercial space station, like an opportunity for a worker to go to a oil rig today, right? They'll, they go for three to six months. They're very handsomely compensated at four to five times what we would consider a typical onshore wage. I think there's a similar thing likely to happen for space station. And so now it becomes, well, I've just finished my training in, and let's, let's pick your, your skill set. you know, whether you're an electrician, uh, perhaps you're a, a heating and cooling specialist, perhaps you're a plumber. And now you have the ability to go work on a space station to provide these same critical, critical jobs, except you're just doing it two, 300 miles up. And, and that will get people even more excited and open up more opportunities because when it's not just the billionaires who are up there and I get it, you know, they're the ones who went after our astronauts went, but when now it's, you know, the guy down the street that you went to high school with, who's up there because, you know, he's the new electrician on the Pfizer space station. That's, that's going to change our perception. And when you're talking about mental models, that matters because it's not just then just this place among the stars, you know, it's that place that Bob goes. And I know Bob and, you know, maybe, maybe there's room for me up there too. And, I, and that's going to change everything. Now I want to, I want to pause here and let's talk about two specific billionaires. Let's talk about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. So these guys have visions that, that in many ways goes beyond anything we've talked about so far, right? Elon Musk is talking about making humanitarian multiplanetary you know, settling Mars. We've got uh, Jeff Bezos, who's talking about a solar civilization with free-flying space colonies that, you know, could, could host up to a trillion human beings and thousand plus fold the, the number of surface area of Earth. And he talks about this great inversion where industry sort of is able to move off Earth because of the abundant energy materials and sort of, you know, the long-term vision of zoning Earth residential. Do you, do you give any credence? Do you take seriously at all these ideas of long-term space settlement or an inversion of that kind? I don't question other people's big dream. What I do like to have, though, is a discussion around what the economics looks like for these things, right? So let's think about what it looks like if we're talking about colonizing, or I prefer settling, Mars. You're talking about the need to send thousands of people and thousands of tons of supplies. We're not anywhere close to that. <laughs> We're not anywhere close to that right now. Is that something we could see in the, in the distant future? Perhaps. I, I would say the same thing with the, the living ship, right? The, the living biodome or the, the idea that all industrialization 
takes place off Earth. So first of all, if all industrialization, manufacturing, production is taking place off Earth, you're talking about extremely, extremely, extremely cheap launch costs and return costs for any of those materials and goods, where it makes sense for us to have a, a DHL or a FedEx-like system of bringing things back and forth on that sort of regular basis. And Earth is a, is a park, right? It's, it's, it's all recreational. It's all park. That's beautiful. It's very beautiful. I, I don't dismiss these dreams. But if we look at the economics around what would actually have to take place to make these two things happen, I have my doubts. I feel like, are these things that my, my grandchildren or great-grandchildren might benefit from? Sure. That's, that's, that's way outside of my, my view. I don't, I don't have that sort of crystal ball. What I do see, though, is we should be having serious discussions about how we put the infrastructure in place, the security and norms in place to promote and advance U.S. firms as they expand into both operating in LEO and in Cislunar. I think as we push forward on, as I mentioned, you know, the, the manufacturing and the biomedical industry and their presence on these space stations that I see coming, that we also should have conversations about what that workforce looks like, the development and support of that workforce. And if all of these lead 50 or 100 years down the road to the, the types of things that, that Bezos and Musk are talking about, I think that's great. I I don't have anything against that. I just think it's important that when we're talking to people, we can show them, well, this is why this makes sense from a cost benefit point of view over the next three years, or the next five years, next 10 years, and, and give them their structure to, to think through that. And, you know, we can put the dreams in their heart, just like, you know, just like science fiction writers have done for so many years, right? They can put the, the dreams in our heart. But well, let, let, let's that. play sci-fi authors for a minute here. So we'll, we'll play uh, policy sci-fi authors. <laughs> so you've mentioned uh, really quite a quite a long laundry list of areas. But you know, if, if we were as a nation on top of our game, talking about this deployment of infrastructure, these you know arrival at norms, like give me several headlines that you you know, would be glad or would expect to see, you know, come out in the next few years that, that would make that more concrete? I think first and foremost, what we would see is something that um, we've already seen actually Space Force do, which is their university partnership programs, their UPPs. So All right, we would... but, but phrase that as a, as a headline, like you would read- Oh, as a headline. In, um, yeah, in, in some- well, and, and where would you read it? You know, what newspaper would you read and what would it say? We would see space grant universities in each of the 50 states, right? So we already have land grant and sea grant universities in the vast majority of states. So we would see space grant universities in each of the states doing the same thing that land and sea grant universities do, which is focus programs of study development and resources around us tapping into this economic activity. So the headline is all 50 states now have space grant program, right? That's that's a headline. I think another headline is US partners with 100 other nations to support their space infrastructure and development. Right? If we want to lead, <laughs> if we want to lead, then we have to lead by also supporting their country's ambitions when it comes to having 
you know, STEM-ready workforces and research and development in the types of technologies that will benefit our build-out of the space infrastructure. So that'd be another fantastic headline. I think a third headline, and uh, probably a headline that we'll see sooner rather than later, is the, the U.S. sets up a exchange for the mitigation and commercialization of space debris. I could see that. It makes sense, right? We Space debris is a blight and it affects anyone with assets up there and it'll just continue to become a bigger and bigger problem. There's a combination of solutions, whether it has to do with you know the, the magnetic capture, right? Like Astroscale has, or with refueling, like a number of firms are working on. But the idea is that there would be a marketplace where people would see the the benefit and they'd be able to trade around that benefit for the removal of space debris. Let's see another good headline. I think the fourth headline would have to be, we now have more satellites pointing out than in. That one, I don't think I'll see that one in my lifetime. But if we think about it, the vast majority of what we have up there now is focused on looking down on ourselves. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's very much uh, you know mirror mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And we're always focused inward with our our space assets, our space resources, and the information we're gathering is all about ourselves. It's going to be a time in the future where we spend more time and more energy looking out because we want to be the first firm or the first nation to get to that asteroid that has a tremendous amount of value or fire off a new colony in a direction that will help us commercialize or set up a new outpost, you know, a, a space, a space force outpost further out that helps us connect our, our companies and in supports them in their exploration of those deep space resources. So I, I think those are all headlines that we'll see. And if you notice, I didn't pick my favorite media partner for who would have those headlines. So <laughs> Got it. Well, actually, this is a great, uh, you, you know, your last comment, and it gives me another good segue. So you had said at, at a point earlier that, you know, part of national power is the ability to provide stability for its citizens and to protect itself and allies. And I was curious, you know, what do you think about the new Space Force? Uh, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And what's its role and how does it connect with the space economy? Sure. So I'm a big supporter of Space Force, and I am happy to see it. Um, I know it's only a couple of years old. It's very new still. And so there's a lot of growing left to do. I think that the role of Space Force is likely one of providing many of those functions I, I mentioned previously. I see Space Force providing a, a clarity around what operations and what norms we we will see in space that our that our allies will expect to have space force support them and make sure that they are they are safe in space that they are able to do whatever commercial activity that they're looking to do up there. I also think that search and rescue will be a bigger and bigger role. Um, if we just think about the needs that U.S. flagged commercial space stations will have whether that is a dozen or, or more than that, they will need connectivity and they will need protection. I also see a future where we don't want private security on space stations. Um, you know, I'm not, not going to make reference to, to certain firms that didn't represent themselves very well in Iraq, but um, I think we'd all rather see Space Force Guardians 
on space stations um, serving that role. And that'll be obviously something we need as we have more and more people living closer together. Um, <laughs> we, we sometimes don't like to get along. I also see when we talk about the communications backbone that connects us to both our further flung outposts, but also our um, much more uh, near term resources and habitats on the moon, I see Space Force having a large role to play in those communication networks. And the last thing I would say is I also see Space Force carrying the flag out and showing what's possible by contributing force, by contributing resources and dollars to being the ones that get us to the first asteroid mine that project out that, you know, well, we need this, you know, Corinthian station between Earth and Mars to help us with transit. I, I do see these all, um, whether it's the fort role, the communications role, or the norms of behavior role, all being things that Space Force will be growing into um, over the decades ahead. You know, in talking about, you know, that growing into, this is obviously a, uh, a part of the conversation constantly where you sort of see two different philosophies in the Space Force. One is, you know, to, to grow, you know, to embrace that and to want to take on as many and as much military, paramilitary uniform type of, uh, of roles because they see themselves as the potential unique provider in that domain, you know, that to that school, it makes sense to take on things that are sort of Coast Guard or Army Corps of Engineering type of functions out in the domain, you know, that get to a lot of the safety of navigation, safety and security. On the other hand, you see folks that have the other view that say, look, we, we have so little budget and why should we provide these? If anything, you know, maybe this should go to NASA or go to FAA or DOT or, you know, set up a separate space you know, guard, but let me just concentrate on the, the hardcore military combat power. Um, and those folks typically, you know, don't assume that there's going to be some significant budget increase along with some significant space economy increase. So I wonder if you might just meditate a little bit on your own thoughts about the pluses and minuses of going with a broader mission set versus a more constrained, you know, what does that mean for the long-term health of the bureaucracy? And then what would be your assumptions for the, for the growth and, and future outlook of the Space Force budget? Is it going to be flat? Is it going to grow? I think the first thing there is Space Force obviously has a dual mission right now, if we make it very, very simple, right? So it has the mission of supporting the rest of the armed forces with their space-based assets. The second part of that mission, and that's the one that, that I was talking about the, the first time, was to extend us further out into space and provide the, the norms, the communications, and the, the, the flag following ability of commerce for the United States and our allies. I think that that balancing act is extremely challenging, I would have to imagine. On a on a budget that's you know sub twenty billion right now um, on on that type of budget I I can imagine that the current need to support the mission for the other services 
with our space-based assets has to be the focus. I think, however, again, and I'm going to say for the third time, we, we have to keep in mind that the exponential growth or the development of technology by one of our allies or peer competitors could change the game very quickly. And so a certain percentage of the focus, I would hope, would also be outwardly facing, would be looking toward cislunar, would be looking toward our activities on the moon and looking toward you know what future outposts might be necessary for whether it's uh, asteroids or Mars. I think that is a that's a tough balance on that sort of budget. But let's I mean let's just talk about the budget, right? I I don't hold a pen, so <laughs> what? But if you think about an economy that is you know forecast as I've mentioned a couple of times to pass a trillion and likely be in the four trillion range in the in the 2030s time frame and maybe even 10 trillion in the 2040s 2050s time line you're talking about increases to the space force budget that will need to keep up with that increased in domain that it is charged with protecting and reinforcing uh, behavioral norms and providing search and rescue functions, uh, communications, infrastructure functions, and the like. So I, I think Space Force's budget is likely to increase proportionally with the increase in the size of the space economy. Now, I'm going to say something else here, though. And this is something I've thought about. And I don't have a good answer. So I think it's worth having a discussion is when, when Space Force leads in the future out in space, is it leading on the infrastructure and communications, but after the outpost is built, does the outpost then get um, manned by the army, right? Because you know the army has bases and the army is very good at its base infrastructure. So is that actually a function that the, that the army would have? Will they be the one with the bases? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, the next thing is we, we talked about uh, search and rescue function, and we also talked about the need for security function on uh, U.S. flagged commercial space stations. Is that something that the Space Force would be providing, or is that something where the U.S. Space Force would be providing the infrastructure for, but the U.S. Marines will have you know, their space Marines on station? Again, I don't know the answer there, but I think the way that that gets shaped out in the future will also determine the budget, right? So is, is the budget one where, where Space Force is supporting the other forces as they look out into space as well? Or is it one where Space Force is in charge of providing both these base functions and these security functions? And I, I don't have a clear answer on that. So I just want to reflect back to you that you clearly envision a world where we have substantial human presence in space, and it's not just all robots and, and IT gear up in space. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about what is your mental model? You know, how many people, you know, what different time scale do you think are, are going to be up there? That seems to be not a prevalent thought within most of the Space Force currently. If we think about how long it takes for us to communicate with the moon, I believe it's a, it's a sub three second range, 
right? But if we think about how long it takes us to communicate with Mars or things further out, we're talking 10, 20 minutes, right? So uh, this is important because if we're talking about a future where it's all telerobotic, our ability to fill in those five minute gaps, those 20 minute gaps would need to be much further along than we are today. So if I think about where telerobotics are now, there is a lot of things that we could do, such as the construction of space habitats and the construction of habitats on the moon with telerobotics. And that can be done with very limited communication delays. The further out we go, the more this the signal delay becomes an issue. And for those who, who work with machine learning or who work with AI, and I, I say AI with a lowercase i, by the way, um, which is where we are today. We're not capital A, capital I. It's, it's not data from Star Trek Next Gen. And so if you think about where we are today, we are not going to get as much done as people might have you believe <laughs> in those in those 20 minute gaps between communication. And so that necessitate that people, that people, not just machines are pushing out further into the solar system to get those resources that we mentioned previously from, from asteroids or um, to, to set up um, settlements on Mars. I think that the other thing that's important to remember is particularly here in the United States, I do not see a future where the American people would support a robots-only army or a robots-only workforce on the moon. It's not just always about the economics or just always about the technology. It's also about that third part of space, which you know we kind of hit on earlier, which is sci-fi. You, you have to win the hearts and minds because if you don't win the hearts and minds, you're not going to have a budget to do any of these things, whether that budget is one that's federally generated or that budget is one that's coming from your firm based on your shareholders' will. We need people there to send dollars there. And again, I want to sort of pin you down, like how many people are, are you imagining in space? Well, I think let's start with where we are today, right? So we have less than 500 people who have ever, ever been up there today. Right. So less than 500 today. And if it's, and with all the l- recent space tourists, if it's a little bit higher, for, forgive me for rounding. Okay. So we've had, we've had less than 500 today. I think if we talk about the next 10 to 15 years and the future that I'm envisioning with six to 12 commercial space stations, we could easily see 500 people in space at one time and on a very regular basis. I think that's what the next five to 10 years looks like when we're talking about these commercial space stations. When we're talking about the moon, I think the moon starts out, and you mentioned this previously, I think the moon starts out as a place where NASA is the leader and where they probably receive a lot of cooperation from Space Force and commercial entities and allied partners. I could easily see in a little bit further time frame, so let's give myself another five to 10 years there, where the moon also has thousand or more people on it from both NASA, Space Force, our allied partners and our commercial, um, our commercial firms. I think what's important here though, is once you have the commercial space stations, the infrastructure and the, the moon in place, now it becomes a project of saying, okay, 
what is the market, right? We're going to tie this back to economics. What is the market that they are tapping into? And what is the demand from that market for greater supply and greater um, goods, services, data, technology being developed? That's when things get interesting very quickly. And that's when we go from 500 in space on space stations and 500 to 1,000 on the moon to 10,000 to 100,000 in a fairly short order. Because again, once we have determined what the export is from space, we will be sending up the bodies to, to compete and to harvest that commercial opportunity. And that's when we start talking about a future where we have tens of thousands of people in space. And from there, I think the zeros start adding to themselves in a rather, rather quick fashion. Wow, that's uh, pretty exciting. I also wanted to try to tie you down to a, a number. You know, you, you had sort of said, hey, we could peg the Space Force budget to the space economy. But like, how much are we actually talking by, by what time frame? I mean, if, if you were helping a, a strategist plan their, their future budget, you know, or if you were, you know, recommending how, how they should be portraying it to inside the Beltway, you know, I mean, what, what sort of growth over what sort of time are we talking? And, you know, let's walk through the assumptions are, you know, the space economy is this big, the U.S. portion of that economy is this big, and then, you know, what is an appropriate percentage of that for space? So if we, so this is, this will be the easiest number that we can generate. And again, we're, we're doing napkins math, but it's really just to make sure our mental model is sound here. And that is, if we currently look at a Space Force budget, which I believe is around 17, 18 billion, right? That represents in the neighborhood of 10%. It's about 10% of what the Air Force gets, right? And that is a 17 to $18 billion Space Force budget that is supporting a $450 billion plus space economy. So if the space economy has a 10-fold increase and gets up to $4 trillion by, we'll do a hard number here, 2040, then by extension, wouldn't we also imagine the Space Force's budget would have a 10-fold increase also by 2040 to support that economy, which it is charged with representing, acquiring the policies necessary and projecting our, um, our, our national interests through. So it's very reasonable to see that if the space economy has a tenfold increase by 2040, that the Space Force's budget would also have a tenfold increase by 2040. And, and, and that might not be linear, right? I mean, that might be slow right. growth initially and then pick up fast, just like compound interest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the most powerful, most powerful tool in all of finance. Yes. So you could easily see where we go from 17 billion budget to 20 billion and 20 billion to 25 billion. But as these economic activity milestones start to fall into place that I've mentioned, whether it's related to the stations, the communication arrays, or the moon infrastructure, there'll be needs for giant leaps forward by the Space Force and its budget. Now, these might come proactively. I know I just heard like 15 scoffs among your listeners, but these, these might happen proactively where we they actually get the money ahead of time to plan ahead of time, 
or the money is allocated more reactionary, which is, oh, oh, is it, is that really the, the fifth commercial space station about to come online? Oh, does that's just the fifth U.S. commercial space station. Oh, look at our, our partners here. Oh, uh, you know, UAE has one of theirs up and China has three of theirs up and Japan has two. Oh, huh, maybe we should give them a fourfold increase. I mean, uh, it could also be reactionary. That would be more unfortunate and, of course, negatively impact the planning. But um, yes, I, I think it's completely reasonable to see a space economy that we think will increase tenfold, that the Space Force's budget will also have to increase tenfold just out of the necessity to um, project, defend, and help lead in the same way it does now, except over a bigger pie. So on that note, is your expectation that the relative percent of the global or the universal economy will stay the same at a at you know a half a percent or do you expect that the space economy itself will grow to become a more significant part of the global economy and if so like what percentage do you think is a reasonable target so if you look at world economy growth like globally let's go as broad as we can you're, you're classically looking at growth in the three, three and a half percent range, right? That's your, your normal forecasted global growth. But that three and a half percent isn't evenly distributed in any way, shape or form. <laughs> there, are, there, there are some countries experiencing much faster growth than others. That actually leads me to say that I, I think what India is doing in space and with the space economy is particularly of interest and should be paid attention to closely. But anyway, I, I digress. When we think about what that 3.5% growth means, if untapping space resources allows firms to experience growth more similar, more similar to that of what we would think of as you know, tech companies, right? Well, many high-flying tech companies experience eight, 10, even double digit, even you know, 12 or higher percent growth. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to think that the growth forecasts for the space economy could also be in those same lines where we're seeing growth happening much, much faster among space economic firms and among space economic activity than we do on terrestrial, on, on Earth-based activity. So uh, that, that'll be interesting. Um, but again, that's, that's only after the infrastructure. So let's peg this down as a planning factor. So by 2040, like what percentage of the, uh, the total economy might this be? So if you look at the world GDP forecasts for, you know, even as far as like 2040, like we've been talking about those numbers. And again, I'm trying to just kind of, you know, go off my, my top here. Um, you're talking about a global economy of the 100 and 100 plus 120, $130 trillion range. So if you're talking about a space economy that is worth, again, 2040, so let's keep our numbers straight here to be very clear, a space economy that is 4 trillion, right? Because we're, we're thinking the 10 isn't until 2050, 4 trillion, then you're talking about a, a space economy that is still, still only three or 4% of the global economy. So the space economy has still not passed. The space economy has still not passed the world economy in terms of its economic activity at that point in time. Now, there's a number of, of dangers here, right? So the first thing is that we're, we're talking about economic activity versus GDP. And I know some of my economic brethren will scoff at me for, for muddying those two together. 
<laughs> but but just for conversational purposes, but we're going to do that to keep it clear. It, we're talking about uh, still a a space uh, a space region of economic activity that is only a fraction, you know, still less than ten percent of global activity. Now you start thinking about growth that is in the you know double digits, right? We talk about the tech model, you know, a ten or fifteen percent growth, and you start talking about <clears throat> a space economy worth closer to the $10 trillion number. Well, now you're talking about a space economy that looks more like 10%, right? It starts, it starts creeping up there in terms of the overall economy. And if that part of the economy, which is the space economy, continues to grow at that higher percentage rate, keep on pushing it out. And again, I, I would hesitate to go past 2050, but keep on pushing it out. You can see a point in time where we do have some of these Bezosian or Muskian models that say, well, all the economic activity will be from outside the earth. Well, I mean, you can see a future where there's a flippening and, and more economic activity could be occurring outside the earth. But those, those are certainly not near term or, or within the lifetime of the vast majority of your listeners. So I wanted to bring you back because you had sort of made it, uh, an aside about your thoughts on India. And what is India's geoeconomic or geostrategic importance, you know, both in space and on earth? And and do you favor a particular posture that the United States should take in its policy towards India? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to prescribe U.S. policy. I'll get myself in trouble real quick. What what I will say is, if you if you look at what India has done, with particularly if you look at what ISRO, the Indian Space you know Resource Organization, if you look if you look at what the ISRO has done with a budget which is sub $2 billion. It's not a, not a very big budget. And, and keep in mind, when we were talking earlier about the, the Space Force budget of you know, the 17 or $18 billion range, if you think about the, the budget for NASA, NASA's budget is still bigger than Space Force's, right? NASA's budget is somewhere around $24 billion. So put that by comparison to India's budget, which is sub $2 billion for the ISRO, they have done some amazing things. Also, let's think about the wealth of talent and economic resources that India has. India is a strong ally. Alia, uh, India is the largest democracy in the world. And India is a trade partner, a strong trade partner with the, with the United States and many of our other allies across the world. And so when I think about what those things mean, my level set, and then I look at their space economy ambitions, I see a very, very strong chance of the US and India having a future together in space where we're both benefiting from the development, commercializations and technologies that both India and, you, and the United States has to bear and again, I just reiterate, you know, they're already a very strong ally. And so it, it would make sense that this partnership is deepened and that this partnership expands toward both of our goals for space. Now, do you see this uh, confined to just one of civil, military or commercial, or do you, do you see this as across all three? No, I, I, I think that when we look at what the Space Race 2.0 space relay races means, it means cooperation that happens on all three fronts. It's cooperation where um, Indian technology partners um, are 
receiving services from U.S. firms. It is where U.S. contracting needs, whether they be DOD or otherwise, or Indian contracting needs, whether it be DOD or otherwise, are serviced across, across both uh, nations. And I think it also relates back to the way that norms will be established in space, where this is a fantastic example whereby fantastic way, but we can lead by example and show uh, two major powers here on earth are cooperating for their endeavors in space from a commercial, civil, and, and military point of view. You know, that's actually a great segue into the international space. And, and so if the United States has the opportunity to play a leadership role in space, what are we called to do? You know, what is the what is the sort of power and the sort of leadership that the world you know, should, should wish for the United States? First and foremost, it is about the way people should expect firms operating under the U.S. flag to behave in space. That is extremely important. Um, this has to do with the safety of our launch vehicles, the way that we handle our flag satellites, and they are either recycled in orbit or removed from orbit to not contribute to debris. This is in the way that we provide search and rescue and aid to one another and our allies, and really all peoples um, when we are in space. And I, I think I think leading by example in those ways and having the, the, the safety and the infrastructure in place to support the commercial growth and expansion helps all of us because it helps any of our allies or partners operating in space have a, have a system that is available for them to access and that is capable of helping them achieve the economic growth that they want to see. All right, and now let me flip it around, right? You know, we are a country who has, you know, done some pretty amazing things, and we have what seems to be a huge opportunity before us, many things that we could do. What is a space agenda that is worthy of our nation? I believe that if we were to really aim for something as a nation and to galvanize around that, in much, in much the way like we did with the Apollo programs. It means that we would have to set our sights on something likely past Mars and past Venus. And I know that's gonna scare some people because I didn't just pick an easy one, like let's have a permanent moon base or let's have a hotel on Mars or something in the Venusian clouds. We're gonna have to go further than that. We're gonna have to really think about what it would mean to develop the technology and infrastructure necessary to push ourselves out past the asteroid belt. That, that's where it's going to get interesting. I'm, I'm not trying to have an expanse moment here. I, I know you've done that with, <laughs> I know you've done that with people before, but I, I do see that sort of push, that grand push to extract resources from the belt and explore beyond with humans. And I know any scientist listening is saying, 
we can't do that right now. And I understand that. I understand that. But we have to implant a vision that's bigger than Hollywood, right? I, I, I don't need someone to, to go to Mars and grow potatoes because, you know, a few hundred million people have already seen that, right? We need to give them something bigger than that to dream about, bigger than that to put their energy into. So when you say this, you know, I, I, I wasn't clear. Are you talking about this as a, a destination to reach for, or is this like, you know, something more akin, you know, to, uh, to a westward or continental expansion where you're saying we're going to ex- extend our, our economic sphere to, in, you know, in, encompass the asteroid belt beyond? Wh- which are you, what, you know, what sort of goal are you articulating? Oh, this is uh, this this is chapter thirty-seven from the book, right? This is this is far and away, right? This is which uh, you know some people hate that movie. I, I think it's a great movie. I'm, I'm a big Tom Cruise fan, so why not, right? But <laughs> I think I think this is westward expansion. This is we have the infrastructure in place to support commercial firms and individuals working for them to go out to and past the belt for the expansion of humanity and for the extension of our economic possibilities. And it's not enough just to picture us back on the moon, right? Who, who likes watching rerun, right? I, I don't want to go back to the moon. I don't want to do something that Hollywood shown me in the, an endless stream of movies about Mars. Give me something more, right? Give me, give me the infrastructure for a quote unquote new westward expansion, one where we are collecting, setting up forts, and doing new and exciting research and scientific work that we can't even imagine today. Like make, make that the vision. So now let's talk about connecting, you know, where we are today to there. So again, you know, we're going to put ourselves in the sci-fi sort of role of being able to author fiction about the future we would hope to see. So start, start thinking about this. And my thought is that the, the last administration did an astounding amount of work in the number of space policy directives. But clearly with a vision as broad and the number of things you've laid out here over our conversation, I want to end with brainstorming what would be the titles of yet to be released space policy directives or executive orders that put us on the right path toward that future you've outlined. I think one of the easiest ones would be if we look at the SBIR, which, are, which is you know, Small Business Innovation Research, and the STTR, which is the Small Business Technology Transfer Programs. Right now, those are not right-sized for space. What I would say is the headline would read something like space-dedicated SBIR, STTR budget times 10. <laughs> And, and you can unleash the thing that we are so, so good at, which is entrepreneurship, innovation, and the, the push toward making ourselves economically better as, as citizens and empower the small businesses doing the research and doing the technology development to access more research funding, more grant dollars, and then give them a pathway to plug into transferring those technologies to NASA or, or to Space Force. Make that the headline, how we want to see 
a thousand new small space businesses. That would be exciting because that's where the innovation comes from. That's where the research and the new technology can come from. And that's what can differentiate ourselves from um, both our allies, who we, we wish well, we hope they compete well too, but also our adversaries. What about, uh, you know, what would be either a headline or what, how would you title an executive order from the White House on infrastructure? I think for infrastructure, it would be something like the U.S. leads coalition of other partners for the financial support of five new space stations. And what about uh, uh, for space manufacturing? And for space manufacturing, I think there, there's, there's actually something kind of interesting, which is uh, we could do that through our, our existing contracting mechanisms. <laughs> we, we could actually make it so that we have a preference, you know, much like, much like NASA did, I think it was in 2000 or 2009 when I, when I first caught the, the space economy bug, but we could do it where we say, listen, we're looking for um, receiving commercial parts or commercial services for A, B, and Z. And we can do that through an existing mechanism. So that, so that would actually be easy. We could, we could cut and paste. <laughs> we could cut and paste from the resurfacing or the crew language that we've already seen previously for commercial providers for NASA and just use that same thing except for piece of infrastructure and technology. What about uh, for uh, gathering resources? Gathering resources, I think, that one is interesting, right? Because we've already seen some talk around what we might be willing to pay for a liter of water in space, right? Um, but I would push it further. I would say, what are we willing to pay for a kilogram of aluminum or iron? Start pushing it into the other materials. So you could almost have it be a list price, right? Where, whether it's Space Force or, or NASA or a consortium of, of other space businesses that say, you know, we're, we are willing and able to pay and receive in orbit at these falling market rates. That could be, that could be something really interesting. So on that note, what do you think of, uh, I've seen ideas to sort of jumpstart this of having a, an operated, something analogous to the strategic propellant reserve, where there was a strategic minerals or strategic water reserve, and then adjacent idea in order to make that uh, work out would be some sort of commodities exchange to, to facilitate the, the movement of these types of materials. So, so I'll, I'll do the first one first, and then I'll probably try to dodge the second one. So the, <laughs> so the first one first, I think the idea of a strategic water reserve that could form a basis for demand right now for the, the generation of the necessary commercial activity to find the supply. That would be, that would be very interesting. I, I wouldn't want it to go on indefinitely. I, I think some of these things we would have to strategically think about how we sunset them. That's a funny term to use in space, obviously, but I, I think we'd have to really think about that. Um, I would want something to go on for a long time and be a, be a boondoggle. On the second point um, that you make about a commodities exchange in space, I will decline to answer only because, um, as you know, I, I am a senior economist with the, with the CFTC. And um, although I am speaking in only my academic capacity here and not for the CFTC today, I would hate to have that confuse the audience that I might be speaking for them. All right. And then uh, would you have a, a title uh, of an executive order related to, to India? 
Yes. So, <laughs> so they have a, a large defense and space conference coming up in just a few months. I, I believe it is in March. It's, it's uh, right in the spring. And I, I think the headline that we should see in just the next, next few weeks is 1,000 delegates from across U.S. DOD and U.S. space industry goes to India to you know, hold hands and sign deals. <laughs> So we can, we can get some of this space technology and research development started. Excellent. Last two. So what might you title Space Force roles and missions? Ooh, I think one of the things that I would like to see is as we look forward to a mission that is expanded beyond, expanded beyond or, the, or the focus changes to one that is more dual, more evenly balanced dual between supporting of the other services and their Earth-based functions is one where... Space Force can, can lead by example in space. And that means carrying the flag, but that also means carrying our, our norms and extending our commercial, our commercial entities and our, and our firms' uh, power and access to, to resources for us and our allies out into space. So one of the missions that is potentially in synergy with that, I'm curious if you've come across the idea of uh, asteroid defense or planetary defense? And if so, do you, do you think that's an appropriate mission to assign the Space Force? Yes, 100%. I, I think that it, we could easily see something there where perhaps NASA leads on the mapping function, um, like they have done for, for a long time, providing the, the mapping of Space Force, but that Space Force leads on the protection of not just Earth, but also potentially our assets further out and what impacts they might have from, <laughs> from uh, pieces of, of space that mean us harm and could take out our, our space stations or, or satellites or moon habitats further out. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, hearing in your answer that I, I might see a headline that like, Congress assigns Space Force with new missions, including planetary defense, debris removal, and search and rescue. Is that, am I on the right track there? That would have been a better answer. So yeah, I'll say I said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then the last thing, if we are going to release like a, a White House document that lays out this grand vision, you know, that, that you provided, what might you title that, doc, that document? U.S. Leadership in the future $20 trillion space economy. Outstanding. Well, George, I want to let you have the, uh, the, the last statement. So, you know, if there's anything I forgot to ask you about or anything you want to drum into our heads about uh, the space economy and where it's going, this is your chance. Sure. I'll, I'll leave it with a, a quick thought, which is at, at the heart of my love for space, is my interest in alternative markets. And they only remain alternative for as long as we have information asymmetries. And so it's on all of us to push education and to push these positive messages about what a future in space will look like for us, our allies and our children. And so, it's sometimes said flippantly, but I will say it authoritatively that um, education matters and we have to provide both the literacy in space and
and the vision of a clear space development future, which is one of uh, free people and free societies promoting its growth and expansion to benefit us all. George, thank you so much for spending so much time. We're going to make sure that we put links to your book and your podcast uh, in our uh, in with our podcast links. But I want to thank you so much for spending so much of your time today to enlighten us about, about the currently alternative market for space, which hopefully will become a mainstream market in the future. Excellent. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at afpc.org. Thank you for listening.